Hey everyone, this is Jake Milwe. I want to welcome you to the sermon podcast for Sweetwater Christian Church. We are glad that you are interested in joining us as we follow Christ. If you would ever like to support our ministry financially or just learn more about us, head on over to sweetwaterchristian.org. Thanks and God bless. Good morning, good morning. Uh, I'm, of course, one of your elders. I'm Jake Milwe, and I've been asked to give the sermon here this morning. And I'm, as always, delighted to be asked. So, Mike is gone, and we're in a period of transition. There's a search committee, and they're doing what they can, and people are stepping up to do the most they're able to do to see this church just kind of through this transition. And we've been blessed, we've been so blessed, with some fantastic speakers, and you're still coming, and things still appear in the offering plate. Uh and uh, with a little more work than what we're used to, a little than what's normal, and a lot of forgiveness, but mostly through the grace of God, church still happens here at Sweetwater Christian Church every Sunday. Now, I've been doing my part as much as I can, and one of my parts is serving on the search and call committee, which, let me tell you, is a lot more complicated of a thing than I think any of us expected going into it. Uh, before we can even get to interviewing or, or even looking at a, a resume, any resumes, uh, we've got some questions we were asked to answer or required to answer just to even start the process. And it has been a fascinating journey of examination of our church in doing that. Um, some of these questions are not small things. Now, some of them are easy. For example, you practice open communion? Why, yes. Yes, we do. What does that mean? Well, that means that you know, anyone is welcome at this table to participate in the rite of communion every Sunday. Anyone. Well, even if they're not members? Yeah, yeah. Even if they're not members. Even if they're not believers? Sure. Sure. Well, what if they're the gay? What if they're children? What if they're uh, not baptized? It's an easy question. Anyone can join us on Sunday and take this communion with us. Anybody. Other questions, however, have taken a little bit more work. For example, would your church be willing to have a female pastor? All right. Well, I know the answer for me Sure, I don't really care whether the pastor is a man or a woman. I have other criteria I'm far more concerned about uh, as we examine potential uh, applicants. But that's me, and I don't feel 100% comfortable speaking on behalf of the entire congregation in this matter, and neither does anyone else on that search and call committee. So what did we do? We asked. We went about, we talked to you people. We had one-on-one -on -one conversations. We brought it up in group meetings, and we had the discussion. And what we found is that, you know what, the majority consensus is that it's not really an issue, and the right woman might be okay for us. We'll just have to see. Then there are other questions, though. Questions like, what is the specific theology of the church? And 
at first glance, that, that may not seem like a monumental question, but whoo, it's a loaded one. It is a loaded question. What's the specific theology of this church? It's broad, but it's asking a bunch of very specific things hidden under the covers. Things that we have to talk about, things that we have to figure out. And let me tell you, um, this is a pretty progressive church in a lot of ways. We tend to be pretty progressive. If you were to review our sermons over the past decade or so, what you would find is that you know, that's pretty, uh, pretty willing to look at things with an open mind. And that we've had you know, things like our elephant in the room discussion debates, which was a fantastic time in our church. But that's not something just any church would have hosted or held or done. So in that regards, at first glance, we look that way. However, um, this is a very eclectic congregation. We are a collection of people, for the most part, who have been dissatisfied somewhere else and found their way here to create a church community where those participating can be satisfied and can worship God. And that brings a lot of different perspectives and beliefs kind of to the table and to the room. So, for example, um, questions like things like, how literal should we take the Bible? Well, if you're still attending this church and you've listened to quite a few of the sermons over the years, chances are you're aware that the general sense is that the entire Bible, starting in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, all the way to the revelation to John at the end of chapter 22, it's generally not presented as something that has to be taken 100% little every time. But that's way too broad, because then we get into the question of, all right, well then, how much of it should we take a literal? Which parts? This passage or that passage? Who gets to decide? And we haven't really addressed these things in the church, and we haven't felt the need to. It's been okay. We worship next to each other, having slightly different perspectives on that, and that has been fantastic, actually, for us. What about the question of what happens when we die? We have members of this congregation that subscribe to Irenaeus' assertion, he's an early church father, that um, when we die, we're dead. That's it. And then later, at the end of days, we will be physically, bodily resurrected into the new kingdom. But in the meantime, oh, that's it. That's it. Lights out. We also have a huge section of our congregation, the body of this particular church, that subscribes to um, Origen, another church father's, uh, Aristotelian-led belief, which is that there is a soul that is an incorporeal existence beyond death, and that we will go and still exist, waiting for that second kingdom and we will reside in either heaven or hell, depending on which way we hang the toilet paper in the bathroom. <laughs> Crucial point. These are not insignificant differences of belief, okay? And yet we all worship here as part of the same community. We have two tr uh, services, one that's traditional, one that's contemporary. This would be the contemporary one if you were curious. Um, Neither of them are liturgical. 
What do I mean by that? I mean, we don't do call and response readings in our services. We don't recite a creed every Sunday. We don't sing glory be to the Father after we pass the plate up and down the rows. I grew up Methodist. These are things that I'm familiar with. They kind of feel churchy to me. And we don't do them here. And yet, somehow, it has been okay. Um, The traditional service says the Lord's Prayer. We do not. And the second service, the contemporary one, and there was some discussion about that when that change was made a few years ago. But here's the thing. All the things that I mentioned, saying the Lord's Prayer, the doxology, the creed, none of that is actually required by Scripture for service. Um, It's all okay to have. I'm not saying that it is wrong to do. It's not, not by any stretch of the imagination. But there's no passage of the Bible that demands that of us. The Lord's Prayer, for example, in the context of Matthew and Luke where it's found, does not have its particular implication of this is the only prayer, this is the perfect prayer, make sure you say this every Sunday. Jesus is merely saying, okay, this is what a good prayer sounds like, as opposed to what you're hearing the Pharisees say out loud in public on the street corners. We have to remember that at the time, in the first century, they didn't necessarily know how to privately, individually beseech God. And that Christ was giving them an example to base that conversation, that communication on. Not to necessarily demand that we repeat the exact same thing every Sunday. We, uh, what we consider traditional service, including me, is merely how we remember church being when we were kids. And we kind of have to recognize that. Yes, these traditions, some of them go back several hundred years. Christianity, though, has been around for thousands. It does not go so deep as to be a truly traditional in sense of a historic sense of term. This is not necessarily what the early church did or what the scripture call for. Acts chapter 2, 42 has a description of what corporate worship is supposed to be. It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings and fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers. Four things, and I would argue that we consistently hit all four here in both services and even in our gatherings outside of Sunday. Okay? Even singing doesn't seem to be required, although there's a wealth of verses that offer up singing as a fantastic way of praise and adulation. So today, I'm going to look at a specific passage in the Bible, and I want to apply it to that pesky question of what is the theology of our church, okay? And... Uh, I hope it answers what the theology of this church should be rooted in. And I hope actually in hearing it, uh, you will believe or accept or agree that this is how it has been and how it is here at this church. But even if it's not, even if that's not how you think our theology is rooted, I would hope that you see us reaching for it and continuing to strive for that kind of idea. So we're going to be working today in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 12 and 13. 
Now, the Corinthian church had a lot of problems. When Paul writes his letter to the Philippians, it's practically dripping with praise and love. It'd be an exchange like you have with your Christmas card with Grandma. Uh, just, you know, I love you, you love me, everything's fantastic, let's talk about that. And then when he writes to the Thessalonians, he's like, okay, I need to address a few things, we need to fix some things, but man, am I proud of you guys. Man, am I proud of you guys. When Paul writes to the Corinthians, you can practically see him rolling up his sleeves and taking off his belt. He's, he's got some issues that he's got to address with this church. Um, you can almost, I mean, it sounds like how I feel when both of my boys have been off their ADHD medication uh, for a couple of days and have chosen to do something particularly foolish where I'm just, I cannot believe I have to have this conversation with you. For the love of the Lord, grab both brain cells and rub them together till there's a spark. <laughs> Show me a light behind the eyes. So I sympathize with Paul's frustration here. A little bit. What are these problems that are happening in Corinth? Well, there's quite a list. Paul says hello in chapter 1, in just one or two verses, and immediately just starts swinging. He really does. There's sexual immorality. tradition and in Davidic history, which is how the Jews at the time were very much thinking and processing and considering stuff. So when Paul writes to the Greeks here in Corinth and in other places, uh, he's writing using logic and philosophical argument construction because they're Greeks. And because that's how they want to wrestle with things. Um, second, most of the issues he's trying to correct in Corinthians prior to the passage I'm going to look at today with you guys are a result of well-to-do members in the church of Corinth, okay, trying to merge high society Greek culture with the activities of being a Christian. They're very special. They're very comfortable in their role as upper society Greeks, and now they want to continue to feel special and continue to do those things and still be this new thing called Christian, and it just doesn't work, and it just doesn't mesh. Uh, and that's most of what he's addressing in this letter, but this passage, the one I'm about to read, it's not addressing a cultural thing. It's, not a, it's different than some of the other chapters in this letter. Instead, what he's doing is he's correcting a group of church members who are demanding that they be exalted because they can speak in tongues during the service, and that that makes them greater than those around. So that's the background of what we're about to read, and I'm going to pick it up in chapter 12, verse 27, and I'm going to take it all the way to chapter 13, verse 13. So here we go. Corinthians, first letter, chapter 12, verse 27. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then deeds of power, then gifts of healing, forms of assistance, forms of leadership, various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? 
are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all possess the gifts of healing, do all speak in tongues, do all interpret. But strive for the greater gifts, and I will show you still a more excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of mortals and of angels, but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give away all my possessions, and if I hand over my body so that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not insist upon its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. But as for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease. For knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know only in part, and we prophesy only in part. But when the complete comes, the partial will just come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became an adult, I put an end to childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. Now I know only in part. Then I will know fully. Even as I have been fully known, and now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, and the greatest of these, is love. Paul is uh, challenging the idea that speaking in tongues is a higher form of divine gift here. And he continues on and spends the entirety of chapter 14 completing his argument against the glorification of speaking in tongues above other gifts. But in the process of building his case in this passage, his logical Greek philosophical case, he gives us something far more profound and far more enduring than just just an ordering of gifts. He reminds us that love is the eternal, endless aspect of God that we all participate in. That it is a constant, renewing, yet sometimes subtle, basis of anything worth having or doing. We know the message of the gospel, the revelation of Christ, the resurrection, the promise of life everlasting. But the power of the gospel It's God's love for us. That Jesus loves us to the point where he suffered and ultimately died 
out of love for us. Love we didn't earn. Love we don't deserve. Love that we, we still have and are experiencing to this day. It is love that is so powerful, it even defeats death itself. And what Paul is telling the Corinthians, and through him and his letter, the Holy Spirit is telling us today is that this love that we are receiving and are invited to reciprocate, we are also expected as the body of Christ to share with each other. share where I am in my place. So. We are expected to emulate to the best of our ability and extend this love to those around us. This is the core, I believe, I truly do believe, of why it feels so right for us to offer open communion. It's an act of love. This is why we can worship next to each other with different understanding of how the Bible is read or different thoughts of what the afterlife looks like. Because at the end of the day, by standing next to each other, by worshiping, by reciprocating God's love back upon him, together in community, we're loving each other at the same time. It's why we can view all of these things not as inconsequential, but as secondary. Because in this church, this community, we are always returning to the idea that receiving, reciprocating, and extending to all those we meet, the most powerful force in existence is part of the point. And that most powerful force is the love of God. Now, I'm going to challenge you. Please, do something this week. Okay? I'm asking you to go home and really think about how you feel loved by this church and this community. What makes you feel loved by Sweetwater Christian Church and the people around you? And what does Sweetwater Christian Church do that calls your attention to God's love of you? Maybe, maybe it's certain songs we sing. Maybe it's a smile when you walk through the door. Maybe it's laughter with the guys around the dining room table. Maybe it's, uh, it's the sermons you hear. Maybe it's someone who just listens while you cry. Maybe it's as simple as gluten-free bread. But please, think, consider Dwell on it this week, because these are the things that make this church what it is. And the things that we need to make sure that we keep for ourselves and offer to anyone who steps through our door. Please pray with me. Dear Lord, we are as ever just trying our best. Trying our best to be who you would have us be, both as individuals and as a church. And though we struggle and hopefully succeed, we know that it is a, 
a journey to acceptance of ourselves in you. And we recognize that you have already accepted us. Please help us to maintain this feeling of love around us. Please help us to share. Make it something that is available to all and not just kept amongst ourselves. Amen.